reading for this morning, we can find it in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and we will be reading verses 8 through 22. Hebrews 11, 8 through 22. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing with her he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength, to conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful, who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and of him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of the country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, unheavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that hath received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. So far the reading of God's word. May the Lord bless his word unto our souls. This morning, uh, let us now together before the Lord in prayer. Dear congregation, do you long for the city of God? Do you yearn for the city that in the words of Augustine of Hippo still lives by faith in this transitory course of time? Do we wish for the city that lives forever in the hearts of God's people? As we can all admit, and as children of our own time, there are many things contending for the removal of eternity from before our eyes 
and from within our own hearts. On the one hand, increasingly more things portray our time on earth as ideal, even to the point where believers wonder if heaven can be any better or even more significant. On the other hand, afflictions and hardships in this life might become so vivid and so troubling that entertainment and self-satisfaction become a necessary but yet temporary solution. Furthermore, our eyes might be so captivated by our earthly endeavors and possessions that our longings and expectations do not stretch beyond our lifespan. Whatever the reason, Satan is certainly making us seek and hope for the city of God less and less. Through this morning's text, we are instructed to desire and to seek a country, a better country, the heavenly country, the city of God. According to our passage this morning, the Christian faith entails more than justification and more than sanctification. In our passage, Christian faith is depicted as a pilgrimage, as a progress, a movement from the earth to heaven, from time to eternity, from the rubble of a fallen world to the glittering streets of the new Jerusalem. And according to our passage, that progress contains three major components. These are a pilgrimage, a perseverance, and a pursuit. Those are the three headings of this morning's sermon. And let us begin by taking a look at the pilgrimage of faith, which we can find in verses 13 and 14. Dear congregation, as we have perhaps heard from this pulpit, or as you have studied personally, the theme of the book of Hebrews is Christ is more excellent, or Christ is superior. When compared to the angels, when compared to Moses, and when compared to the Levitical high priest, the conclusion of the author of Hebrews is always the same. To all these, Christ is superior. Both in his person and in his ministry, Christ is more excellent. As we can read in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. And what we find in chapter 11 is that faith is the more excellent means through which people, sinful people, can become the object of that more excellent high priest. As we recently heard, as I know that you are going through the book of Hebrews, or as you have read, it is by faith that a sinner can receive Jesus, the more excellent mediator. 
And yet, because approaching God by faith in the more perfect high priest might have looked like or might have seen a, a novelty or an innovation for people who were used to the Old Testament ceremonies, the author of the book of Hebrews is trying to demonstrate from beginning to the end of Israel's history that the just has lived by faith, by employing a poetic and even rhythmic language from the Greek. The author tries to mark in his audience's minds those truths or that truth that the just has always lived by faith. Dear children or dear young people, are there any psalters or any hymns that are easy for you to remember or that are sticky because of the rhythm or because of the content? Because it is repetitive. The similar effect is trying to be achieved by the author of Hebrews because he uses the Greek and he uses a repetitive pattern to say by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. He is trying to press that upon the audience's mind that the Christian must live by faith. And also... Our verses are considered an interlude. It means a transition from one section to another. Verses 8 through 12 show that the patriarchs are described as pilgrims. Verses 17 through 22 show the actual tests of faith that the patriarchs faced. And our verses 13 through 16 show the principle or if you want, the musical tone by which the patriarchs would respond to those particular tests of faith. Again, children and young people, an interlude in music is a section in which only instruments play, but they usually announce the coming of a new section in a song. In the same way, verses 13 through 16 announce the principle by which the patriarchs lived and spent their time here on the earth. Then from verses 17 to 22, we can uh, see an expression of how living by faith, of how living as a pilgrim would look like once they would experience particular trials of faith here on earth. And it is interesting that our passage begins with the words, These all died in faith, as we see in verse 13. Because of the context, we understand that all this refers to the patriarchs, because Enoch, for instance, he didn't see death. He was transposed or translated. And the patriarchs, they died on, the, on their pilgrimage to the land of promise, as verse 14 recalls, for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Because of different references, we see that in the New Testament, new covenant believers become heirs of the new heavens and the new earth, to which the land of promise 
partially pointed to in its consummation. And the word partially is suitable because ultimately speaking, Christ is the ultimate rest of believers. Matthew 5, 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Romans 4, 13 says that the promise was made to Abraham that he should be the heir of the world. So through Christ's death and resurrection, we, as children of Abraham, as we heard this morning in Sunday school, we become heirs of that glorious new world, which makes us heavenly pilgrims here on the earth. There are six characteristics that we find in verse 13, or actions that the patriarchs performed, which can also provide concrete assistance for us as we make our progress from earth to heaven. Uh, In the beginning of verse 13, there is a death in faith. They died in faith, and died is the main verb in verse 13. But the subsequent description of this same verse shows that it is not only speaking about their death, but the way in which they lived. From the Greek, the initial sentence says, according to faith, all these died. It then means that they lived believing. They died believing. They all died believers. And this speaks to us, especially to our elderly brothers and sisters, who naturally speaking have... uh, the cross of the Jordan closer. Uh, It is important how we begin and how we run the course of our Christian life. But it is also important the way we finish our Christian race. Yes, we need to to live believing, but we pray and hope and rest in the Lord that all of us may also die believing with a strong faith. Believing that we will go to the place that God has promised to us. Secondly, there is a reception of the promises in faith because the patriarchs did not possess the land by themselves. They did not see a multitude of descendants. They did not see that their seed would be blessed or was being blessed by Jesus Christ. They They saw glimpses of it. And they saw hints of the fulfillment of this. But as we know, the patriarchs never dwell in the land of the promise. So they saw the promises, but they died in faith because they themselves never fully received them. And thirdly, as we can see in verse 13, so they died in faith, they did not receive the promises, but they saw them afar off. There is an observation and seeing of the promises in faith. And we will address this in the next point, but brethren, let us intentionally behold the scriptural descriptions of the new Jerusalem. Where is the place that you are being led to? Do you know where you are going? When was the last time that you spent some minutes reading 
perhaps Revelation 21 or Revelation 22, so that you can have a grasp of the city that awaits for you. Fourthly, they embraced them. And there is a persuasion in faith. As the Heidelberg Catechism defines true faith, there is knowledge, there is assent, and there is a heartfelt trust. So after reading the Word of God and learning of the Gospel promises, we consider them to be true. But even more, we rest in the fact that we are of those who are in need of such a Savior and such promises attached to the Lord Jesus Christ. But it does not end there. We need to rest in the fact that Christ is an able but also a willing Savior, willing to apply His work and willing to give His promises to a sinner that repents and that heartfelt that has a heartfelt trust in Him. Fifthly, there is an embracing or greeting of the promises. The Greek terms point to the Greek term points to an actual greeting, like uh, a sojourner when he left his city back then, and in coming back he saw the city, then he would wave his hand in uh, an expression of, "I see the city, I see my city." I see my home. So he waves in a kind of response to seeing how close he is from the place that he is from. Uh, we know this when we go perhaps on a vacation trip with children, that whenever we are coming close to home or to town, the children begin to wave their town or their home. So the same expectation needs to be in us as we think about the place that we belong to. We need to be in a constant greeting, in a constant expectation of when will be the day that the Lord will call us home. And sixthly, there is a confession of faith. They confessed at the end of verse 13 that they were strangers and pilgrims. Belgic confession states that we confess with our mouths what we believe with our hearts. So believers, we are to describe ourselves as strangers and pilgrims on the earth because that is what we are in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, this is what we are. This is part of our identity now. So the question that we may ask at this point is who we are or who you are. Who are you? Because our passage informs us about our identity in Christ. It is now a matter related to our beings. We are strangers. We are pilgrims on this earth. We have been rescued from our past manner of life. And we are on our way home so it doesn't mean, however, that the road is easy. But the conclusion so far is clear. We need to see ourselves more and more as citizens of the heaven. Whatever may hinder our pilgrimage is something that we need to deal with, both internally 
and externally, as Peter says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which, which war against the soul. Even though the end of our pilgrimage is glorious, and in that we rejoice, there is also a reality, and that is that sometimes our pilgrimage can be very, very challenging and difficult to us. And we may face obstacles that can look impossible for us to surpass. Thus we move to our second heading. There is not only a pilgrimage of faith, but there is a perseverance in faith, which we can, inver- which we can find in verse 15. And another reason why faith is so stressed in, verse, uh, in these verses, in this chapter, is that the Hebrews were being greatly afflicted by their own. Hebrew believers were being persecuted by ethnic Hebrews. The Hebrew church was being persecuted. And it was so even to the point that some were returning to the physical and papable ceremonies of the Old Covenant. In verse 38 of chapter 10, we can see that the author urges the Hebrews by saying, Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So this explains why some of the situations through which the author of Hebrews chose to expound faith are actual tests or trials. We see in verse 17 that by faith Abraham... When he was tried, he offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Faith must persevere through trials. And that is the message the author is trying to convey here. And the key to perseverance in this chapter is highlighted in verse 15. More specifically in the words... And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, this is an evident contrast between the patriarchs and the people of Israel after they were delivered from the land of Egypt. Do you perhaps remember that whenever Israel was tried in the wilderness, almost the first word that came out of their mouths was a word expressing their longing to return to Egypt. Exodus 14, 11 and 12. Hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Just two months after being redeemed, rescued, they murmured against Moses, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full. So the contrast is clear. This was not the mindset of the patriarchs and such must must not be ours. Our mindset should be one that 
aims to heaven. One that leads us not to return, but to look on the things that are above. As Colossians 3.1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ seateth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. And the seed of a heavenly mindset is... uh, Filling our minds with the Word of God. Of course, knowledge is not everything, but that is where a heavenly mindset begins. Sometimes when we face different issues or problems, or when we battle against different weaknesses in our Christian life, we are surprised because, so to say, the answer or the weapon, the spiritual weapon that we have available for us to overcome comes down to the same spiritual disciplines. Being in the Word of God. Going before the Lord in prayer. Gathering with the saints. And even though it may seem repetitive to us, there is no substitute for the influence and the power of the Word of God in our lives. Just think for a second, if you have ever gotten away from the Word of God, think for a second how earthly we begin to turn. The Word of God is the one that fills our minds with a heavenly mindset and reminds us constantly that we are not from here, that we do not belong here, but that we are being led somewhere Else, Andrew Bonner wrote about Murray Machain that his morning hours were set apart for the nourishment of his soul with the purpose of giving the eye the habit of looking upward. So this is certainly true. And an encouragement for us is to give the first hours of our day to the reading of the Word of God to the feeling of our minds with the Word of God. Because that is how our, how our eyes will get the habit of looking upward for the rest of the day. The Scriptures, children, are like a telescope. They bring before us the immensity and the reality of eternity. Through a telescope, we can see big objects that are very far from us. We can see them close and small at the same time. So the scriptures take the immensity of eternity and bring it before us in a way that we can see it close to us and in a way that is accommodated to our senses, to our understanding Actually, the references to the act of seeing in chapter 11 are important. Verse 1, if you can walk with me through these verses. Verse 1, chapter 11. Faith is the substance of the things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse 3. Through faith we understand that the world that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Verse 7, 
By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. And verse 27, which is a beautiful verse. By faith Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Verses 1 and 2 from Hebrews 12. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So Christian life or the pilgrimage of Christian life is a tension between the things that our eyes see and the things that we do not see. But the solution to that tension is to always look, to always see the invisible one. So dear brothers and sisters, what do you see? Or whom do you see? If God's providential hand strikes with an illness, whom do you see? And what do you see? Do you see death closer? Or you see heaven closer? Do you see that God is fathering the image of His Son within you? Do you see that God is calling your own and perhaps your family or your friend's attention to the reality of eternity? Do you see that God often uses illnesses to reveal himself to others. When scarcity knocks on your door, do you see the pantry half empty? Or do you see that God is teaching you dependence? Do you see that the Lord is calling you to his presence to ask from him and to know Jehovah Jireh? Young people, when you experience uncertainty about the future, what will I do? Where will I study? What career will I pursue? Whom will I marry? Whom do you see? Do you see that there are different roads with no clear direction? Or do you see that God is in control of your tomorrow and that this is an opportunity for you to experience the paternal love of God. Do you rest in the one who holds our tomorrow? When God blesses you with abundance, what do you see? Do you see as Nebuchadnezzar that which your hands have built? Or you see that God is graciously entrusting you with what is his do you see the gift or the giver congregation when we see a deconstruction of our society such as we are facing what do we see or whom do we see again as we heard this morning in the Sunday school do we see that the Lord is still seated on his throne and that he is the sovereign over everything 
do we see that he has set his king upon his holy hill? Yes, there is a cause that we need to militate for. And we need to fight the good battle. But do we fight from the point of view that victory has been already secured? In congregation... When was the last time that you saw the new Jerusalem? When was the last time that you read and the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones? And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple thereof. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten the city, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Congregation, when was the last time that we saw and rejoiced and yearned for the day in which we would be able to inhabit this city? Isn't this your city? Isn't this the place that you are heading to? Isn't this the place that you desire? Faith, as we saw, is the substance of things hoped for. This means that when we read about heaven or the new Jerusalem, as one commentator said, accordingly, faith causes the thing hoped for, though not yet actually existing, to exist in the mind of the believer who ascends firmly to the promises of God as if he saw the blessings promised already present. So when we read about this glorious city, about this blessed country, is it, it is as if it were across the street. Because our faith tells us that because God has said it in his word, then it is present and it is awaiting for me. As sure as the word of God is, every single believer is heading to this glorious city. We are in the middle of a pilgrimage. We are in a progress. And we are being brought home by the Lord. But faith not only sees, faith Desires. This is our third point, which we can find in verse 16. It is told about a young Scottish minister from the 17th century, whose name was Andrew Gray, that he so longed for heaven, and he did it so strongly and so consistently, that when he died at the age of 22, his congregation saw that the Lord was granting him his desire. And the reason why the patriarchs confessed 
that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And the reason why they were not mindful of Egypt or the country where they were called out from is because as Hebrews 13, 14 says, they saw that here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. From the Greek, the term desire in verse 16 pictures not only an emotion or something a person feels. Desire from the Greek points to stretching one's own hands in order to receive what is desired. So it is a very strong feeling what the text is speaking about. The patriarchs not only felt something, but they walked with their hands stretched, ready to receive that which they so longed for. And from our text, we also understand that the heavenly country is desired and pursued in a covenantal or congregational framework. The word country, first in verse 14, and then supplied by translators in verse 16, is rooted in the term father. It is actually a fatherland, a more precise translation of the Greek term country. Again, first used in verse 14 and then supplied in verse 16. And the fatherland points to a portion of land that a son or a daughter would receive from his father or her father. But then it was expected that the children of that son or of that daughter could also inhabit the same land. So, brothers and sisters, this speaks beautifully to us because we progress as a family. As a family, we move from earth to heaven. And uh, parents, let us employ all the means at our disposal to bring the gospel to our children. Let us beg through the faithfulness of the Lord that our children may inherit the heavenly land. If your children perhaps have grown up and you are not sure if they will inherit heaven, then do not despair. Continue to pray and continue to employ the means that the Lord has given us in His Word. Pray and preach the gospel and rely upon the promises of the Lord and go before the Lord and claim those promises back before Him that He may allow you to experience those blessed promises that He will be a God to you but also to your seed. Preach the gospel and intercede for them because God is the God of the covenant and in that we rest but we also see great responsibility as in Genesis eighteen nineteen. When God said about Abraham, For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. 
And we know that the faith of the patriarchs was not unshakable. We had a glimpse of that this morning again. They had shortcomings. They had times of struggle and times of difficulty. But they were sustained by the Lord. They were secured from the moment in which God sealed his name along with his covenant. It is not because of Abraham or because of Isaac or because of Jacob. It is because when God entered into a covenant with them, he sealed his name with them. Interestingly, in the second part of verse 16, we read that God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And again, despite of all the difficulties that we see in the patriarchs, because we know who Abraham was, we know who Isaac was, and we know who Jacob was, But how does God introduce himself in the scripture? He calls himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Because of his faithfulness and because of his grace. So in this covenant God we rest. In this covenant God we hope. And in this covenant God we labor waiting upon his faithfulness and his grace. And now, my unbelieving friend among us, what is hindering you from desiring or pursuing the country of God, the heavenly country? God has put eternity in the hearts of men. And like the servant said to the master in the banquet in Luke 14:22, yet there is room. There is yet room in the city of God for those who have been impressed with a sense of their sin. There is yet room for those who long for the grace of Jesus Christ. There is yet room for those who know that the only way to be delivered is through Jesus Christ. There is yet room for those who stand afar off and do not dare to lift up their eyes, but say, Depart from me, for I am a sinner. Or say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. As Thomas Boston said, there is yet room for you in the heart of the Master. And we are in January 2024. And there is yet room in the city of God for a sinner that repents and that heartfully or heartfully trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is still working And he is still gathering his church. And he is bringing still more people into this city. And there is yet room for a sinner that repents 
that recognizes his sin and his guilt, and that knows that Jesus is the only way to be delivered from it, and that heartfully trusts in the person and work of Christ. You know, Israel progressed in the wilderness, but there were many who couldn't enter into the land of the promise. May the Lord keep this congregation that any of us be left out from that blessed city because of unbelief. So the call this morning for the unbeliever is yet there is room in the city of God for those who trust in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin. There is yet room, my friend. Make sure that you are not left out of this blessed city because the counterpart is an eternal suffering. If you ascend to the truths of the gospel and you trust the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, then he will not let your soul die forever. Trust in him. So congregation, if the Lord is pleased with bringing us into situations where humanly speaking, we see no way out of it, we see that we are facing something that goes beyond our capacity, our ability to respond, and even sometimes our faith. Don't forget to take a second look and see Him who is invisible. Even in the most difficult circumstance and in the most helpless state, the Word of God continues to be living and powerful. This is the means the Lord chose to glorify Himself, to lead us into situations in which sometimes the only thing we have is His Word. But that is always more than enough because it is a never-failing, everlasting Word. Let us not forget that He is leading us to a place. That He is leading us to the city whose architect He is. And He is bringing us to the city that He Himself has prepared for His people. The Lord is bringing us home. Let us say with Rutherford, The sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn of sight for the fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight, but day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Amen. Let us go before the Lord. O Father of heaven, we come before Thee with gratitude for how mercifully and how graciously Thou hast planned 
to have a place in which thou wilt gather thy elect from all history. And we thank thee that this is a place in which thou thyself will be the temple in which we will dwell in eternal felicity beholding thee praising thee worshipping thee and we thank thee because then our redemption here upon earth will be a memory and thou will feel all in all and we will rejoice in the Lamb who was slain to purchase us. O dear God of heaven, also consider those in our midst that have not access or entrance to this city. Consider granting it to them and consider making them longing, pursuing, begging to thee for entering into the new Jerusalem. Lord, also help us and assist us as we continue in our progress here on the earth. Help our unbelief and help us in the different circumstances that thy providence brings before us. Help those with different health issues. Help those with who have had experiences that have been painful and difficult to experience or to bear. Be with them, O Lord, and comfort them. Be also with those who experience fear or anxiety because of the future. Be with those who have backslidden and bring them back to the race. Bring them back to thy people. Lord, help us all as we progress to this glorious city. And please, Lord, keep our faith until the end of our days. We know this is a fact because it is in thy word. But comfort our hearts that we are secure in Christ. In the name of him we pray. Amen.